Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi there, you are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences, featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. Over the past several years, we've seen the journalism world take a hard look at itself. Reporters and documentary makers have had to confront the relationship between cold, hard facts and the push to make compelling stories that linger long after they're heard. Kelly McBride of the Pointer Institute moderated a panel at the 2012 Third Coast Conference to address the ethical dilemmas that pop up for journalists when producing stories. She was joined by Matt Thompson, who worked with NPR when this session was recorded, but is now the deputy editor at The Atlantic, and writer, reporter, and documentarian Alex Kotlowitz. Together, they discussed the common, shared ethical values of reporting and whether those values are absolute or if they can be bent. And just a quick note, this session features a clip from Alex's film, The Interrupters. You can find a link to that video in the description of this episode on your podcast app or at thirdcoastfestival.org. Okay, that's it for me. Here's whose story is it. So let me, let me just set the scene here before we get started. Um, as documentary-type storytelling intersects more and more with journalism, I expect more and more tension in white-hot scandals like we've seen this year. Um, when I look at the Mike Daisy story or the Coney 2012 story, it reminds me of another moment in journalism. And this was very early in in my formation as a storyteller because I was still in high school when this actually happened. In 1981, Janet Cook, does anybody know who Janet Cook was? Okay, you know, that's how long ago that happened because it was about 10 of you just raised your hand. (laughs) Um, Janet Cook was exposed as a fabulist for creating a fictional eight-year-old heroin addict a story um, that she published in the Washington Post, um, in which she was briefly awarded a Pulitzer Prize for um, before she was unmasked as um, somebody who was, who was making stuff up. Um, but at that point in time, something was going on in journalism called the narrative, mo- mo- the narrative movement. And that was a point in time when we were trying to get the boring stories out of newspapers and transform them into something that was more readable, more consumable, more entertaining, um, and just more enjoyable to, um, for the audience. And, and narrative journalism was, was the antidote to these very dry, boring stories that were filling up most American newspapers at that point in time. And when Janet Cook 
was exposed as a liar, something happened in, 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 in American newspapers at that point in time. Suddenly we were um, questioning whether we could use that <coughs> form of storytelling because it seemed so unreliable. And, and, and it seemed like the people who were interested in narrative stories were interested in one kind of truth, and the editors who were editing newspapers were interested in another kind of truth. And maybe one kind of truth had a capital T, and the other kind of truth had a little t, but they needed to both coexist. And at that point in time, newspapers made a pivot, and they started formalizing their codes of ethics. They started training their staffs to make ethical decisions and to have ethical standards that went beyond just a set of rules. And I wonder if, in your world, we're at that point in time now. So that's the, that's the question that I would lay before you. Um, when it comes to ethical decisions in very intimate forms of storytelling, I think we have... Um, we have a lot of competing loyalties as reporters, as storytellers. Um, so in addition to thinking about truth and accuracy, I'm hoping that as we go through a couple of examples today, that you'll think about how as, you, as your form of intimate storytelling puts a lot of pressure on your subjects, how do you balance your obligation to your subjects and your fidelity to your story? and to your audience. Because if you've ever worked with somebody who otherwise would not be in the public eye at all and has a very powerful story to tell, you're, you're putting a lot on that person. You're putting a lot of pressure on that individual to carry, to carry your story. And, and maybe it's to carry her story or to carry his story, but it's a lot of pressure. And in this day and age of the internet, this stuff is always around. It's not like 10 or 15 years ago when if we published something on TV or on national public radio, it went away. This is always around. So when you're asking a 15-year-old to talk about her sexual orientation or you're asking um, a guy who's a criminal to talk about the choices that he's made, that will always be there for him. And in many cases, um, if you Google the person's name that you do a story on, it will be the very first thing that shows up almost forever on the internet because of the because of the exposure and the distribution that you can you can give your sources. So so that's a pretty weighty responsibility. And Matt and Alex are going to talk about this um, because they've both been in these situations. Alex, I think you've probably spent most of your storytelling right in that moment. Um, do you want to say anything before we get started? No, I, I mean, I think you framed it really nicely. I mean, I think ultimately, I think probably most of you, um, I, I, I'm supposing most of you uh, probably spend time with people who really have no obligation to speak with us. They're not public figures. They're people who lead these very private lives, and we enter, we intrude on their lives, and we're there at their invitation. And so I think the ultimate question, and it's a question I grapple with all the time, is your loyalty to your subject or subjects or to your story. And sometimes that can conflict with each other. And so I, um, so I, I know I'm excited about having this conversation and also hearing from some of you because I know that with these ethical conundrums come up time and time again. and. If you're like me, you're dealing with them on your own. 
Matt? Yeah, it's part of the reason uh, that uh, I'm here is because I had a hand. I was one of the co-authors of NPR's Ethics Handbook. So uh, when you hear me talk, uh, I am always in my mind kind of calibrating these 10 principles. This is how we, this is our approach um, to both writing the handbook and also making these decisions when we talk about them in the newsroom at NPR. We've got these 10 principles, fairness, accuracy, independence, transparency, honesty, impartiality, completeness, accountability, respect, and excellence. Um, and so- That was very good. <laughs> <laughs> I have a handy mnemonic device, and if you remember the order in which I said those, then you'd realize what it was. Anyway, um, <laughs> the uh, uh, we're often asked to sort of keep these principles in balance. Um, often they're competing with one another. Often getting an accurate, presenting a, a source's words accurately, presenting exactly what a person said the way they said it, is somewhat in tension with clarity, which we'd see as part of, of excellence. A source says something really muddy. You remove an um, an ah, a pause, a phrase. Um, at what point do you sacrifice too much accuracy and completeness for in the service to excellence? So as we talk about these things, you'll hear me refer to these values again and again. Um, and often, it's a matter of balancing between multiple ones. And one more thing before we get to our examples. Um, I often, when, when so, so one of the things I do at Pointer is I answer the phone when people from newsrooms call with ethical dilemmas. And, and it's, it's almost one a day that I get. And I'll, I'll talk an individual or a group of people through the problem that they're dealing with. Um, and w one of the things that I that I say is, you are you are much better if you ask questions than if you know the answers. You're much better prepared to address these issues if you can ask really good questions rather than if you think you know the answers. Because because oftentimes there are many answers to these problems, and. Um, some of the answers are better than others. So please don't, don't anyone walk out of this room and say, well, Kelly McBride says there are no right answers because that's not what I'm saying. There are definitely right answers. And sometimes there's more than one. And there are definitely wrong answers to, to addressing these tensions. Um, but the process that you use to surface the answers is more important than whether you know the answers in the first place. So. Um, Let's start with um, something that happened um, in late August um, on NPR. Um, at, um, Ari Shapiro was at a um, was was at a veterans convention, and he was um, interviewing. Um, he was doing his basic. Um, he's on the bus with Romney, and he was doing his basic. You know, here's the latest in the campaign. Right. Romney was going to give a speech. It was a Romney rally. Right, right. And he interviewed this woman, and here is what she said. And by the way, this, this quote in the story you know, Isaac is, moves north from Louisiana. is something of a non sequitur. It's not, this largely gray uh, when you hear this quote, you don't necessarily, it's not, it's not referring to something earlier in the interview. It's a piece of Vox. I mean, it's this person that he found at this rally um, who said this thing that felt notable to him, notable enough to include. Right. So, okay, here we go. Sorry about that. Husband, who's a vet, and she has strong feelings about President Obama. I just, I don't like him. Can't stand to look at him. I don't like his wife. She's far from the first lady. 
it's about time we get a first lady in here that acts like a first lady and looks like a first lady. The president spoke to this group in person last year. All right. Now, a very, very small piece of audio. But did you all hear it? Could you all hear it? So, so let me hear from you guys. What, and do we need people to speak into the mic? Uh, there's no, no. There's no. Oh, there is no mic up there. Okay, never mind. But speak loudly. This okay. room swallows. Okay, so, so let me hear from you guys real quickly. What, what are the challenges posed by that small piece of audio? May I ask just what did you hear? I mean, what there was she go. saying? I mean, I said a comment about... Loud. A comment about she doesn't look like the first lady could be interpreted as racism. Okay. And um, attributing that to the rally could cause a stir. Okay, because now you're connecting this particular rally to what could be perceived as a racist comment. How many people heard the racial undertones? in that comment. Okay, almost everybody in the room. Did anybody not hear the racial undertones? Okay, because you could argue, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I didn't hear it, but I felt like so many people think what she said, why not hear it? Okay, okay, so, so, so that's the next question then, um, is, is whether you're gonna use a piece of audio like this um, and how you will use this piece of audio. Ari dumped it into a, um, basically a campaign stop story. Um, anybody else have any qualms about using it in that particular way? In the back. Well, you know, when the other side, let's call them for lack of a better word, the other side, refers to anything racial, uh, the Rachel Maddows of the world, you know, say, well, this is, they're doing the dog whistle thing, that any reference to this is meant to make you picture President Obama as an African American, and therefore, you're bringing up racism. So I guess if you are going to fault the right for this supposed dog whistle problem, uh, one might say, well, this is the left-wing equivalent that we're bringing up the racial idea so that everyone who is on one side of this issue will know that this is something about race, racism, not actually saying it, but perking up the ears of people who are prone to think that this is an issue. And of course, oh, we all know that this is racism and, it's, and yet we're not calling out its name. That's why it's a dog whistle, because those people whose ears are perked up would be listening for it. Okay. So I think that brings up a problem. Sir, yeah. the best here. The question I had was, uh, I just wanted to know if he asked a follow-up question, like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Mm. I don't know um, if he did or not. Okay, Let, I want to pause there because because you guys talked a lot about this. I mean, I heard this in the morning, and I was like, whoa. Yeah. What the heck was that? And I immediately started emailing everybody that I knew at NPR going, are you guys talking about this? And, and you were, yeah. right? So here's the circumstances uh, at the rally at the time. Um, right after Miss Lucia finishes speaking, uh, Mitt Romney begins speaking, and Ari has to run over uh, to capture his remarks. Um, and she's lost in the crowd at that point. He can't go back. Um, so the question became, he couldn't actually do the follow-up. But at the same time, you know, if you've covered stump speeches before, you know that the most notable thing tends to be, the most notable stuff and the most interesting stuff to report about um, tends not to be what's happening on stage. The stump speech 
is often, you know, pieces of it. There, uh, there's at least uh, one reporter, not at NPR, but one reporter who's been on the press corps who actually numbered the sections of the stump speech so <laughs> that they could just, in their notes, write, okay, this time he went 4, 5, 2, 14, 11. Um, <laughs> so uh, Ari had to hear what, what Mitt Romney was saying up on stage, but uh, with that moment felt without it, uh, the concern was, are we sanitizing this? Are we removing something from, we don't, we want to hear as much as we can about how people are reacting to the presidential candidate uh, in different parts of the country. Uh, it's a sentiment that the, uh, Ms. Lucier's quote uh, stands out. And without it, have we made this story, even without the context that we want to add to it, is the story incomplete? On the other hand, with it, are we just leaving something in the ether that's going to, uh, that is without context and also incomplete? So, so let me pose the question this way. What is your obligation to this woman? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think the obligation is to understand exactly what she's trying to say. Because to me, it sounds like she's also just being sexist. You know, like a woman, she should maybe not be, not be outspoken or not be, you know, talking about promoting health for children or whatever. So what exactly does she mean? If we assume that Republicans are racist, then we, we assume that she's being a racist, but maybe she's being something else. And I think we have to understand all the meanings she's saying to it. So asking her what do you mean by that is what we owe to her and not to lay our assumptions on, on to what she just said. Right, it's funny how being sexist is much more acceptable than being racist, right? Um, yeah, and the blue shirt there. Uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking is, like, if, if there's no good way to paint a quote like that, right? I mean, if you're saying the first lady doesn't look like a first lady, what, what's the defense? How would you defend that? And I, I know there are more, you have more uh, audio, but... Well, I just had a question, so I'm, I, for clarity, I guess, and maybe I'm the only one in the room, but I'm, I'm a little... Uh, I want to be clear about what the controversy was about. Is it that the, the feeling at NPR that you were perhaps being unfair to this woman or that you were perhaps being unfair to Romney and his campaign? Uh, more to, to Bob, the Bobby Lucier. Yeah, to the, the woman, woman yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, let me take a couple more comments and then, I w then we're just going to move forward and one, we'll talk about how NPR one detail. This. One detail that I'll add when this story went up is from uh, our audience online. I mean, one place where we hear from our audience is online. And when we put up the quote, it's something of a Rorschach test, actually, what you hear in the quote. Um, on the one hand, several members of the audience said right away, she said she doesn't look like a first lady. There's really only one obvious respect in which this woman doesn't look like the first ladies who have preceded her. So it has to be race, right? On the other hand, other folks said, yeah, it's... I think she's talking about something perhaps generational, something about um, the way mores have changed over the years. She, Michelle Obama is a contemporary first lady. Okay, a couple more thoughts and then we'll play it. So three in the black there. Uh, just wondering how many other voices, like if it's a kaleidoscope of voices, I would more think about how it represents the Romney campaign. If it's a kaleidoscope of voices, you're like, all right, this is one of many. If, if there's just two, a couple, and she's one of a couple of people, then all of a sudden it gives it much more weight. Right, and she, I would say one of a couple. I think there's two other people quoted in the story. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and his point was, you know, this is a gathering of veterans. Is it veterans of foreign affairs or foreign wars? 
VFW? So. Yeah, I think it's VFW. Um, but um, this was a gathering of, of these veterans, and, and Ari's main point was that um, they may be for, for Romney, but they're much more against Obama, this group of people. That was his main point of the story. So it did work with the theme of the story. Um, yeah, in the gray there. Addressing the question of whether it's unfair to this woman or unfair to the campaign, mostly to me, it feels unfair to as a listener. Like it's, it feels really unfair to me uh, and to the audience in general because here you have a woman who uh, all of us immediately feel like, whoa, I want to know more about what she's saying. I, I want to, I want to hear her explanation of it, even if it's exactly what I think it is. I just need to know. And so to put it in and then and then move on and, and not address it is possibly unfair to her. We, we don't know how unfair it is, but that's what's unfair to me, that I don't know. And so that, it, it, just, it just feels, it, it feels unfair. It feels like, I, like I'm not getting a complete picture and you're putting in something that is possibly sensational and then moving on like, oh, see, people say some yeah. stuff. One of the things they say in playwriting is you never have a gun on stage unless you're going to use it. Um, I mean, you guys probably know this in storytelling as well. Um, so um, the um, NPR went back to her. But, but actually, before I get to that, um, that's exactly, as you think about your obligation you have competing loyalties. And this is very much how we have to make really hard choices when we, when we make ethical decisions. You have a loyalty to her because she's your source and, um, or your subject, and she has agreed to talk to you. And so you have entered into a relationship with her, and you have a loyalty to her. Um, and, and you can argue about what that loyalty is, if it's to protect her or to um, expose her, or to merely be accurately document her. You can argue about what values you apply to that loyalty. You have a loyalty to the story that you're trying to tell, that it be truthful and fair, um, that it be revelatory, um, and depending on in what medium or platform you're using this, that it, that it be meaningful to the audience and that it move the broader narrative forward. And then you also have an, a loyalty to that audience. And, and so, so I really like um, that you brought that up because it's, it's, it's hard to articulate that sometimes. Because the fact is, is we see our subjects all the time, but we don't necessarily see our audience. We don't interact with them. So it's very, it's very easy to remember your loyalty to your sources. Um, it's very difficult to remember what your loyalty is to your audience. Um, so this is um, so, so because there was so how did the, how did it come about that, that Ari went back to her? Happened total happenstance. Ari was at another Romney rally later and happened to run into Miss Lucia's husband again, um, and says, is, "Does your wife happen to be here?" <laughs> and I think he tells the story actually. Yeah, here uh, in this in this clip. Let's um. Let's listen to this. Let's follow up now on a story that prompted some debate among our listeners when it first aired. Here's NPR's Ari Shapiro, who stumbled upon this postscript. When Mitt Romney spoke to the American Legion Conference in Indianapolis last month, thousands of people from across the country were in the audience. I happened to speak with Bobby Lucier of Virginia, who said this about President Obama. I just, I don't like him. Can't stand to look at him. I don't like his wife. She's far from the first lady. 
it's about time we get a first lady in here that acts like a first lady and looks like a first lady. After that story aired, listeners asked what she meant, whether her quote was racist, and whether I should have aired her comments at all. NPR's ombudsman wrote a column about it, and people discussed it on Twitter and Facebook. Yesterday, Romney held a much smaller event at an American Legion post outside of Washington, D.C. As I was packing up to leave, a man tapped me on the shoulder. You are in Indianapolis, he said. It was Mr. Lucier. His wife agreed to talk with me again. She was unaware that her quote had spurred so much conversation. And she explained what she meant when she said Michelle Obama doesn't look like a first lady. Can you imagine, you know... Kennedys or the Bushes or anybody doing push-ups on the floor. I mean, you know, that's just not a first lady. A lot of people wondered if there was a racial undertone to your comments. No, it's not. I don't care what color she is. It's just she just doesn't act and look like a first lady. I mean, she's more about looking, showing her arms off than, you know. I think that's very inappropriate for a lot of functions that she goes to. So do you mean it's an issue of modesty? Well, yeah, I mean, you see her walking around in shorts and, you know, just real casual wear. And to me, that's, I mean, when I go to functions, I kind of dress up other than, you know, today. But you just got to look the part. Okay, we'll stop there. (laughs) Changes how you view her initial statement. Maybe not completely. Because, because I think some people still hear undertones of racism in there. But it certainly makes you judge her much less harshly um, the second time around. That's bizarre that he stumbled into her because yeah. the first event was in Indianapolis, I believe, yeah. and the second one was in D.C. So the question uh, is, what is she doing traveling? <laughs> I get the impression these are super fans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. Ari says that the husband came up to him and tapped him on the shoulder, but the wife didn't know about the controversy that her comments had spurred. But do we know why the husband approached Ari? It sounds like he just recognized her. Yeah, right it now. sounds like, yeah, he just came up and said, hey, you, I recognize you from uh, Indianapolis, yeah. Um, I mean, for, for a lot of folks, remember, just talking to a national reporter is, uh, um, is a totally memorable moment for them, so... Okay, one last comment on this, and then we're moving on. I mean, it, it, was, it was fortuitous that that happened. I, I would say that the, the first piece, you should, you know, it was ambiguous. It forces a listener to make assumptions. I would say that shouldn't have been in the piece. The second part, if he had, if he had followed up the first time and, and added that, then you know, that would have been a fine piece. You know, did he try to track down? He had the name of the husband. Did he try to, after, you know, after the first one, before the second, saying it's... I, I have an obligation to try to sort this out. I'm actually not sure um, uh, what sort of efforts we're putting into tracking her down. An interesting sort of foot, footnote to this um, postscript is, again, uh, the extended comments. Uh, when you go to NPR.org and you look at the discussion about this, once again, total Rorschach test. Uh, several folks, uh, I'm sure that minds were changed. On the other hand, uh, several folks found that even the extended comments offered no m- more perspective on what Ms. Lucia was thinking, was thinking um, than the original remarks. Okay. Same, same so, so we're I'm because 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 I want to I want to talk about a bunch of different things. We're moving on. So, <laughs> moderator's prerogative. Sorry. Yeah, um, so, I mean, you've dealt with this though. What? How do you mitigate your loyalty to someone in your stories? 
Right. Um, well, I think it's a little bit different, though, than this. I feel like what's going on here is that there's some uh, ambiguity about what's being said. And I think it's our responsibility, and I think that was what Ari saw as well, to if there's any ambiguity that we get absolute clarity for ourselves and ultimately, as somebody suggested, for our listeners. And, and that's what I think was at work here. Um, so how, what came so, up for you in this? Right. So this is – I'm about to show a scene from The Interrupters. And just a, a very quick background. So um, – my partner on the film, Steve James, and I spent a, a year with uh, three individuals who work for this anti-violence organization in Chicago. And they're uh, three individuals, each of them of the street. And I'm happy to sort of talk about sort of the balancing act we had to work with them because they were kind of our entree into these communities. And they were very upfront and, and, and honest about their own backgrounds. And, and there were instances where, and I'm, I'd be glad to talk about them, where we did things to protect them. But this is a scene where one of the individuals we're following, Kobe Williams, one of their jobs is to, or their main job really, is to mediate disputes. And Kobe gets a phone call from uh, a guy that he had spent time with in the county jail a number of years ago who's just in a rage um, because uh, he's the police have just raided his house and uh, – um, and they took away his brother in handcuffs. They handcuffed his mother, and, and he thinks he knows who – tried to turn him in. So you're about to meet Kobe here as he uh, talks about getting this phone call, and then we're going to go to the scene where he meets his former cellmate. Okay. I got a call from a guy I met in jail. He said this guy sent the police into the house somehow he was doing the legal things. Say the police kicked his door in, they locked up his brother, they threw handcuffs on his mother. Talking about he knew who had sent the police in this house. He is looking for him. Everything gonna get your ass yesterday, nigga. Man, fuck that pussy ass nigga. What's up? What's up? What's up? My man Flamo make you laugh, but if you fuck with him, you better bring it on. These motherfuckers came here, man. Had my motherfucking mama handcuffed, my little brother handcuffed and shit, man. Took my little brother one, got shot. The fucking wheelchair, man. Took him to jail. But still, though, man, you got to try to leave that shit alone, though, man. Leave the shit alone till I get these motherfuckers. You already know how I get in. I mean, but that shit ain't gonna make no... Boy, it's gonna make it better for me. I'm sorry to hear about your brother, but still, though, they don't make shit no better. They ain't gonna make shit no better, though. Fuck making it better. I'm walk around my fucking pistol. Can you grab my phone, brother? I don't... I can't, you know. Man, you crazy, man, be out here like that. Thing. It's love and everything, but I ain't feeling that, none of this shit. And I respect y'all, you know what I'm saying, what you're doing and everything, that's cool. But fuck that. I'm not with C's fight. What was y'all letting these motherfuckers can't kick in my door in? What I'm saying is we can't erase what already happened, but the whole thing is you got to look at it like, man. You can't erase what happened. You right. And you can't predict what the fuck I'm finna do. Shit. You know, we just we try just to work try shit out. you options and solutions yeah. to the problem. Man. Fuck this shit. Fuck a problem. Fuck a solution. These motherfuckers trying to take my shit. You ain't just crossing me, you cross my fucking mama. But my mama, nigga, I come in your crib and kill that motherfucker body. Two of your brother's gone. If you be gone, they ain't gonna do nothing but hurt your mama. Shit be alright. How many kids you got? I I'm claiming four. All right, but I'm That's just saying, it. so if you go to jail, who will take care of your kids? That's the thing. God taking care of us now. He gonna take care of me. Just like when I do what I'm gonna do, he gonna take care of me too. But you was locked up before for the same shit though. Man, I've been, I'm 32 years old, I've been locked up 15 years in my life. What that mean? What the fuck that mean? That's where I grew up at. 
God damn it, ain't no shame, ain't no secret. Shit. I'm tired of being out here any motherfucker. Where it's bored as hell, like soft ass niggas out here ain't doing shit but trinking. That ain't the police, is What's that on the corner? I know these punk ass police still want me. Motherfuckers gonna have to kill me. Man, that shit crazy, man. How can you help me? Right now. How can you help me? I mean, the only thing, like I say, the only thing I could do is try to get to know you more, spend a little time with you, and try to work with so you. So that means you will take me out to dinner then. We can go to lunch right now, and we can sit down and we can talk about this motherfucking problem. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to hold you to that goddamn shit. Yeah, we could go out. Mm. That's what you want to do. Mm. We could go out now. Right now? Yeah. Let me go put my pistol up. <laughs> Set it. We'll just see. If, if, if anybody's seen The Wire, he reminds me. He's like, kind of like Omar from The Wire. Uh, he, um, so this scene... I was thinking cheese a little bit more. <laughs> So, you know, uh, this moment raised a, a number of questions for us. Um, so, um, a little backstory. So, first of all, we obviously needed Flamo's permission to film him. So, when Kobe knew, uh, he, when he called us and, and told us uh, that he was going over to Flamo, he said, because we had asked Kobe to call us if there was anything that came up. Kobe said to Flamo, I got this, uh, he used to refer to us as, as his film crew. He said, my film crew is coming with me. They're doing a documentary. So we get there, and Flamo, at that point, has been drinking, You can, which is, raises another issue. But he's been drinking, and Flamo comes to the door, and he starts his, you know, throws his cell phone, and then he looks at us and goes, who the fuck are you guys? And so we explained, and Kobe explained, and then he just goes on in his rage. So a couple of issues. One, so we we're, we come and film this guy, and he's drinking, right? He's clearly inebriated. Um, and so is it fair to him? Um, I mean, he, you know, he gave us permission. Um, he gave us permission on camera to film him. Um, but this is his moment in the spotlight. Um, the other thing that came up is he's a, um, he's clearly, um, despite his rage, he's got a sense of humor about him. And when we showed a rough cut to this to some people, they felt that he was kind of playing the fool. And so we went back, uh, and so it raised the question, too, were we being fair to him um, in that in that moment? Um, it, raised a th it potentially raised a third question, which fortunately it didn't. Um, but here we were privy to somebody who was about to go shoot somebody. Um, and um, fortunately, um, Kobe's able to talk him off the ledge, and so he doesn't go and sort of seek revenge. But it did raise this other question. You know, you're witness to a, a crime or the making of a crime, and what's your responsibility? Um, and um, so fortunately, we didn't have to deal with that. But let me let me talk a little bit about the two issues, the humor and the, and the drinking. Um, so we decided, um, uh, having heard from people watching a rough cut of the film um, and their perceptions of Flamo, we went back to Kobe and asked him to talk about Flamo's humor. And so there's a line that you hear now in this piece, in the scene where Kobe directly says, you know, Flamo can be a really funny guy, but you got to take him seriously. So he kind of acknowledges it, which was really, I think, really helpful, helpful to an audience. The other thing that was important to us, and it was important to Flamo, and it was also important to the story, um, was that we needed to revisit him. And so Flamo, this is not the only time in the end that we ended up spending time with him. And that was really essential. It would have been, I think, and I don't know how others feel, I think completely unfair to Flamo if this was our one moment. As, as glorious a filmic moment as it is, um, if we had just spent time with him here. Yeah, and the second moment is quite different. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, Flamo's journey is a kind of a, an amazing one. I don't want to give it away in the film. Uh, uh, you have to go watch the film. Um, but we, so in working on this this year, it kind of every time we were out, we were faced with these conundrums. You know, uh, we were asked into, people let us into their lives and let us into their lives in incredibly vulnerable moments. And who's your responsibility to? Um, and is it to your audience uh, or is it to your subjects? And I think how you gain consent is is a tough question because because a lot of times you don't have a chance to like sit down and make sure that that this person really understands what they're consenting to. I mean, do you think when he said sure fine that he right. knew at right. all what he was agreeing to? Right. No, I don't think. First of all, he was he was drunk. I mean, so um, so it, to be fair to him at the moment, uh, absolutely not. And then also here we are. This you know these three white guys uh, tagging along with Kobe, and we've got it. You know we're we're doing a documentary about about what you know. What, why are you guys here? Um, uh, I think what's amazing is he was so in the moment that after he kind of asked who we were, he was right back in his rage. Yeah, yeah. There's a question. There. Well, I was just gonna say the other thing that what I remember from this movie is the next scene. They they go eat some food and he comes. He goes with them to an interrupt to a meeting. Right. And you're not filming him surreptitiously. He knows you're there, but he's less. It looks like the camera's across the room, right? And he's much more serious. His demeanor's totally changed, and it, you know, because I felt the same way. He's definitely playing up to the cameras, and then you're like, okay, he's he's this actual thoughtful person, and right. it, it gave this fuller picture of him. Yeah, in the black jacket here. Did you actually have him sign a release? So we, so we, we did this film um, both for theatrical release and also for Frontline. And so Frontline required, um, and we would have gotten them anyway, they required releases from everybody. Um, and it's an interesting issue because I work in print, radio, and film, and the kind of, the, the sort of general rules are very different in each uh, um, but for film, you need a written release. We, with some people, and Flamo was one of them, we got releases on camera instead of written releases. So what a release says, which I, maybe you say all this to them, but a release talks about how you can use this image in any number of ways in perpetuity. <coughs> you just basically said, can I film you? And right. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is printed releases are incomprehensible. I mean, you really need a lawyer to sort of sort through them. And, um, and it, what, it felt more comfortable to me to do these on-camera releases because we could say on camera, so I'd say to Flamo, Flamo, we're doing this documentary about the Kobe and his colleagues were out here to film a documentary for Frontline, and we just want to make sure we have your permission. And he would. And, he and that would, will hold up yeah. as long as they're an adult. That that was according to. And and let me point out that at that moment in time, you have divided loyalties. Mm -hmm. You know, you because you want the guy to agree, right? And you would like him to actually know what he's agreeing to. And those are two completely different sets of loyalties. One is to yourself and to your story that you're trying to tell, and one is to the source. Um, and, and in the best of circumstances, they line up. Um, but, but I do think that um, obtaining actual consent is different than obtaining consent. So, in the back there. Well, isn't it whether he agreed on camera or on, uh, uh, in a written consent, he agreed while he was drunk. So the question is, does that actually constitute consent, and what was your thinking? 
Right. Well, our thinking was both, again, both because we felt some responsibility to Flamo, um, who we didn't know, but we nonetheless felt some responsibility to him, um, and also some responsibility to the story, is that we went back and filmed Flamo on a number of other occasions. So that's ultimately, I think, what made this scene permissible. But Alex, would you, uh, uh, did you consider, or do you think it's the right thing to do, to return to him and ask him for consent when he's sober of what, what you feel. Right. I mean, you know, I th if my memory serves me right, we may have gone back to get a printed. We may have gotten to sign something at the end. But the truth of the matter is, and this is for me is kind of the fiction about consent. So we went back, and he was completely sober. Went back on a number of occasions, and so here we are. We're, we're a film crew. We're filming him. It's so evident what we're doing. So it feels to me just the participation. I'm not a lawyer, but it feels to me just the participation is a consent to let us film. That we've caught him in a moment in which he's completely aware of his surroundings. Let me, let me interject here that um, one of, when, when I'm answering that phone and I'm helping newsrooms through um, conundrums that are very similar to this, one of the, one of the best alternatives is, be, because a lot of times people say, can I use this or can't I use this? They frame it in a this or that. And one of, so two things, one is never leave yourself with two options. You always want to have a minimum of three alternatives, or else you haven't necessarily gone through a very healthy process. And one of the best alternatives in many of these situations is not taking material out, but adding more material. So showing Flamo in another light minimizes the harm to him that you might cause by showing him only in a drunken rage. Right here. I mean, maybe If he, had, if he had come to you and he said, not only do I never want to be in the new film again, but I regret what I said and you came in when I was drunk, I think, you know, I mean, look, we, if, if it was important to us to have him in the film, we would have pushed and been very persistent, and I can be persistent. Um, but I think at some point, um, if he was persistent himself, insistent, that we would have backed down and just said, okay. I think it would have been perfectly reasonable for Flamo to have said to us, Two days later when he was sober, you know, guys, I really regret having let you guys in. I wasn't in a, a, a good frame of mind, and I don't want to be a part of your film. And that's certainly his prerogative. My feeling is it's his prerogative. Now, you know, as a journalist, you could say, well, you're out there. It's on the street. It seems completely permissible. But I do feel that we've... We've got an obligation to people who are not accustomed to dealing with the press, or in this case, a film crew, um, to sort of help them think through the repercussions. We did that with all the main characters, Kobe, Eddie, and Amina. We did extensive interviews with them about their backgrounds, and there were moments when they were, they were incredibly open and honest with us, and there were things that we left out of the film that we just thought would be harmful to them in the end. Um, and, uh, and I think that's essential. I mean, it's a, it's a fine line to walk, I understand, as a storyteller, but... Um, another, another piece of this, I mean, I think that that actually is a really important dimension, the fact that we would, we would interact differently and probably make different decisions with a national-level politician who has a history of interacting with the media and knows the stakes of mm -hmm. being covered in this way. Um, 
but with folks who, you know, although Flamo probably could anchor a reality TV series, um, he, he hasn't. Um, so you want to take more care with folks like that. But I feel like another, to bring, bring it back to your point about um, the responsibility to uh, the audience, um, Another aspect of this that felt important as a, as a consideration, I'm curious how you thought about this, this is actually exactly what the film is about. I mean, this moment is sort of a pivotal being there at the moment when someone is considering a violent action and seeing how that pattern is disrupted. That is why this is called The Interrupters. Um, so in terms of accuracy and completeness and painting a picture for the audience of this is what it means to prevent a violent act from occurring, the scene feels really important. Oh, it was essential. I mean, we knew as soon as we, in the midst of that film, I mean, we all said to ourselves, you know, this what, a, what an incredible moment. This is kind of the moment we knew we needed. So absolutely. But I do think, though, that as much as we love that scene and there, that we would have probably taken it out. And yeah. I will tell you that... Um, one of the things that we did with this film, which was we showed a rough cut to each of the three main subjects, to Kobe, Eddie, and Amina, and there were uh, at least one scene that we took out of the film at the request of one of them because they felt it, com it might compromise, not so much them, but compromise somebody else. What was the, the nature of that? So it was a scene, and one of the interrupters, Eddie Bocanegra, is a guy who at the age of 17 um, was part of a gang, and one of the guys he ran with who was a little bit older than him was paralyzed in a shooting. And so Eddie, in an act of revenge, uh, went and shot another gang member and killed him and ended up serving 14 years in prison. And Eddie's out. And Eddie's kind of, Eddie's story is that he's really trying to find a way to forgive himself for what he did. I don't know that he'll ever get there. He's an amazing individual. But one of the things that Eddie wanted to do was that he wanted to confront the guy who got paralyzed, who's now in his 40s and still running the streets. And so we had this incredible moment where Eddie goes, and visits with Ricardo outside of school, and Ricardo's in a wheelchair, and we agreed not to film Ricardo's face. And Eddie's basically look, you know, saying, why are you doing this? You know, I mean, I, I, gave, my I gave my life for you. Why are you still running the streets? Why, why is this your life? And, and it was an incredible moment. And, and Eddie watched the rough cut, and, um, and he came to us and said, you know, guys, I just really, I'm really worried that we've put Ricardo in a really precarious situation because he's still part of a gang, and... Eddie was worried a little bit about himself. And we went back and forth. And at one point, we even asked Eddie if we might go talk to the gang leaders. And Eddie said, I think that was a very good idea. And it probably wasn't. <laughs> um, and so we ended up taking the scene out of the film. Cut it. Just parking in to let you know we're going to take a quick break. And then we'll be right back with the rest of this session. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, ReSound. ReSound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. 
So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. How many of you let your sources see a rough cut of your material? It's huge. It's huge. Let me offer up let me offer up a framework to think about that. And and I think one of the ways that you want to think about that is you want to think about your own independence and the reason that you're allowing the source to see the material because you want to preserve your independence as a storyteller. And this is actually one of the differences between journalists and documentarians. And some of you may consider yourselves more documentarians than journalists, but a journalist wants to preserve her independence for as the storyteller. And a documentarian is is much more willing to turn over that independence or even that point of view to someone in the story. Um, and, and neither one is better than the other. It's just that journalists, journalism serves a different purpose than, than documentary work. And, and we're getting into this space where the two are overlapping. Right, but can I take issue with that a little bit? Because I do, you know, I write a lot for the New York Times Magazine and the New Yorker. And so when you write for them, you, you, they assign you a fact checker, you know, an individual who sifts through your story paragraph by paragraph, line by line. And, and they not only question you, but they call all your sources. They call all your sources to make sure that what you said is accurate. And if they don't read it back verbatim, they'll paraphrase what you've written or paraphrase a quote, which for me is the equivalent, I think, of showing somebody a rough cut. Mm-hmm. Of a film. I agree. Uh, yeah, I agree, and I don't think there's anything okay. wrong with it, even right. as a journalist. Right. And from time, and uh, we will say in our ethics handbook, there are times when we want to be crystal clear with our sources that this is what we're going with, and we want to actually check it with them, quote by quote, and say 
This is what we're going with. Do you want to add any context to this? We do preserve our independence in that we say to our sources when we do this, uh, we feel comfortable going with all of this. What we want is to get added context from you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was called out by about nine media critics and defended by one, Eric Wemple of the Washington Post, for my defense of a reporter at the Washington Post who had done exactly that. And what I said was, it seems to me like he was trying really hard to get his story right. Yeah. Um, now, he may have been a little misguided in how he did that. So, so I don't have a problem with it. I just think that in the framework, before you do it, you want to, you want to let the source know what the term of that negotiation are. And it's also helpful to have somebody else helping you think through that, if it's an editor or a, another producer, um, a manager of some sort. So, um, striped shirt there. I was wondering if you would have ever considered blurring his face and bleeping his name. With the, You mean in the scene that we... Well, we talked to Eddie about that. You couldn't see his face, so... Um, but any no, no, this scene that we just watched. Oh, this scene. Did we ever consider? No, because Flamo was agreeable in the end. If he uh, hadn't been. Well, again, I feel like you know that you want to be careful. I mean, I think first of all, we wouldn't. I don't know that we would have done it without his permission. But, but secondly, I, I you want to be careful that you're not. You still there are ways to identify who he is. And it's like as a writer, I'll tell you, people ask me all the time. You know, well, can I'll do this, but can I change my name? And and I'm perfectly agreeable with that. I mean, magazines have their own set of. Rules, but I also am very clear with people, you know, I can change your name, but it's going to provide you some general anonymity, but it's not going to provide you anonymity from the people you really care about. And I feel like that's one of the things, one of the places, again, that we need to be really straight with people. Um, and in other words, if in my first book, There Are No Children Here, if I change the names of those boys, people might not be able to identify them outside of their neighborhood, but everybody in that neighborhood knows who they are. It doesn't provide them any anonymity from the people who are most affected, who, who most affect them. And, uh. All right, two more questions on this particular story. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, in the case of the Washington Post, it was, it was a person in a position of power that the reporter shared his story with. And I wonder if we do have more of an obligation to the people who may not know or understand how they're their participation will affect them down the road. And I'm thinking, especially when working with children, with young people, right. that comes up. Right. Um, and I, how, have you done that <coughs> often with your other work, kind of gone over how you plan to use? Yeah, I think, you know, especially with children, I mean, anybody in a real vulnerable, anybody in a vulnerable position, I think we have a real obligation. And sometimes you can't foresee um, what is at issue. I mean, I will tell you, years ago, when I was at the Wall Street Journal, the, the story that was the kernel for There Are No Children Here, I spent a summer with Lafayette, one of the boys um, at the projects, and it was a summer, it was about the violence in his life. And in the story, in passing, I mentioned that the father uh, slept at um, home uh, periodically, and the family was receiving AFDC. They were receiving welfare. And this was during the Reagan years and when sort of public aid was turned on its head. And these people at public aid read this and said, aha, we have ourselves a welfare cheat, and they end up cutting the family off of welfare because of that. Um, I mean, there was no way I could have foreseen it, but it's made me much more sensitive to sort of trying to make sure that I've kind of protected my subjects um, from anything that might not they might not expect by being so open and candid with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, in the back, and then we're going to one more case. I'm not sure this question makes sense, but you seem to brush past 
it, you, you said fortunately we didn't have to deal with you know the consequences of maybe he he was going to commit that crime, and you know this might I'm not sure I haven't seen it so I don't really know what it's about but you know what how would you have felt if that would have happened you had that knowledge you said that you had a responsibility to your subject that you're filming and to your audience but what if I mean, and I don't know, I mean, journalists aren't God, you know, but like, what about the responsibility to the potential victim in that situation? How do you manage that? Model? So just in case you didn't hear, she asked, what about the responsibility to a potential victim had right. he fulfilled that promise to commit violence? Right, if Kobe had not talked him off the ledge here, and it's a really tough question, and I don't know that I have a, to be honest, I don't know that I have a really easy answer for it. I, I spend a lot of time in communities like this, and I do make it a point as best I can not to witness a crime. I don't want to be in that position. Um, and we were, we went, you know, got this call from Kobe, went down to Flamo, and then as soon as we were in the midst of this, I thought, oh my God, I just hope Kobe talks him off the ledge. Um, because it is, it is a really tough question. I mean, part of what is, uh, to underscore Kelly's point before about the importance of asking these questions and having these conversations and just having this be a part of the texture of right. your work, um, we don't have answers. I mean, the questions are what's most important. And the facility with being able to think through these decisions and their consequences is what's actually most valuable in these circumstances. Um, James Fallows talks about this um, this episode of a show that used to air on PBS um, uh, uh, in the 80s. Um, it's one episode where um, we had two journalists. I want to say, do you remember what I'm talking about? Um, it's uh, it, it was a sort of Socratic debate show um, where it, uh, the host would ask, there were several guests on each week, and it was about ethics um, and public life. Um, in this particular case, there were two journalists, two prominent television journalists, uh, and two military officials. Uh, and the, uh, the, the host posed the hypothetical Okay, you are in a an invented Southeast Asian country, um, and uh, you are being held captive by uh, the by the folks who are um, soldiers who are fighting against your country. Um, you happen upon and happen to understand that these soldiers are about to fire on soldiers from your country. Um, you could at peril to yourself, shout out and warn the soldiers or not. Um, stay silent, you're a journalist. Um, what do you do? Uh, the journalist's answer, you can see for yourself. Uh, <laughs> if you look for me on Twitter, I'll try to find the clip and, and tweet it out afterwards. But what was notable to, to James Fallows was just how much more of a facility the military folks had with talking through the ethical implications of the journalist's decision than the journalist did. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Okay, is anybody from Radiolab here? Okay, um, we were hoping that Jad would come, um, and maybe we'll get him tomorrow. Um, so Radiolab has had a really interesting conundrum recently um, with this story um, that was about, so, so they did a whole episode on truth and how you search for the truth. And one of the three pieces was about yellow rain. And the central question of the piece was whether um, this stuff 
that fell in in Vietnam and Cambodia after it was Cambodia, right? Wait, wait, it was the, it was the, the Hmong who fled who fled Vietnam, and they were in Laos, right? right. Laos, it's and Laos, so yeah. and and they were terribly. I mean, you should give a little background here. Mm-hmm. They were terribly persecuted, and uh, I mean, it was people killed in the t- taken out of their homes and killed. And at one point during this, um, there was this rain, this yellow rain that fell from the sky. And people were poisoned, their plants and animals were poisoned. Um, and it's become a part of the story of the Hmong and their persecution. And so Radiolab went to do a story um, about whether that yellow rain was really chemical weaponry. It was always assumed that it was uh, the CIA, the f- our federal government, had determined that it was uh, chemical <coughs> weapons used by the, the Soviets and or supplied by the Soviets. Yeah. And so this story went to sort of get at whether, in fact, that was the case. Yeah. And and they, they were interviewing someone who had survived this. And this man's niece was translating for them. And this is what happened. Right. So actually, we should give a little more background here, too, I okay. guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, no, it's important, I think, to understand. So the piece determines, I mean, it's a really interesting story. So apparently, um, there was a scientist from Cornell, a biologist, who uh, for a number of years later, uh, there's still some of the material that was the yellow rain that had uh, uh, that had fallen, and he went and examined it and real and came to the conclusion that it in fact wasn't chemical weapons, but it was bee poop. That bees have a tendency, especially after hibernation, to go on mass, and they've, they've been holding everything in. Right, they've been holding. They're, the they're constipated, as Robert <laughs> Krolwich says in this piece, and they basically it's yellow rain, and and that that's what this was. And so Krolwich, I'm sorry, so Krolwich and Pat Waters go to this Hmong gentleman to talk to him about his experience. And so here's a clip from that. With my own eyes, I saw pollen that could kill grass, could kill leaves, could kill trees. But he himself is not clear whether it's the bee stuff or whether it's other stuff because there was so much stuff coming down from the sky. You know that that there were chemicals being that being used against the Hmong in the mountains of Laos, whether this is the chemicals from the bomb or yellow rain, chemicals were being used. It feels to him like this is a semantic debate, and, and, and it feels like, uh, like, like there's a sad lack of justice, that, that, that the word of a man who survived this thing must be pitted against a professor from Harvard who's read these accounts. But um, as far as I can tell, your uncle didn't see the bee pollen fall. Your uncle didn't see a plane. My uncle says um, for the last 20 years he didn't know that anything anybody was interested in the death of the Hmong people. He agreed to do this interview because you were interested. You know what happened to the Hmong happened, and the world has has been uninterested for the last 20 years. He agreed because you were interested. That the story would be heard and that the Hmong deaths would be documented and recognized. That's why he agreed to the interview, that the Hmong heart is broken, that our leaders have been silenced, and what we know has been questioned again and again is not a surprise to him or to me. I agreed to the interview for the same reason. 
that Radio Lab was interested in the Hmong story, that they were interested in documenting the deaths that happened. There was so much that was not told. Everybody knows that chemical warfare was being used. Well, how do you create bombs if not with chemicals? We can play the semantics game. We can. But I'm not interested. My uncle is not interested. We have lost too much heart and too many people in the process. I, I think that I think the interview is done. Now, um, that that wasn't the end of the interview. They they kept on talking. Robert and Bat explained to Kalia that, you know, we're reporters, we're just trying to figure out what happened. One thing I do want to make clear, we informed the Yangs in advance that we wanted to talk about the controversy surrounding Yellow Rain. We were very clear about that. We did not intend to ambush them. But this okay, and then this is how that changed the story. So let me go forward here. thing that we had been looking so hard at and saying stop looking at that look over here yeah like she like she didn't convince me at all that this wasn't a chemical weapon but she convinced me that we were missing something yeah what i'm hearing her say there not having been in this interview is quit focusing on this yellow rain stuff because when you do that you're shoving aside the much larger story Namely, that my people were being killed. Right. She's, so that's you are, exactly you're def- what she's saying. So you're, and you're that is dissent. wrong. That is absolutely, to my mind, that is not fair to us. How is it not fair? It's not fair to ask us to not consider the other stories and the other frames of this story. Wait, the wait. fact that the most powerful man in the world, Ronald Reagan, used this story to order the manufacture of chemical weapons for the first time in 20 years. If the United States were to manufacture chemical weapons again and then use them, because the Russians supposedly had, then people would have died ugly deaths in the consequence of that. And that is not unimportant. That's hugely important. But it's not important to her. So should that not be important to us? But I, yeah, I mean, She's but I saying, do think that... I don't know. I, I think that... Until she, until she said the things that she said at the end of that interview, I don't think that I had fully appreciated the, the volume of pain that was involved in that moment for them. Yeah. Yes, I thought... I... So in that moment, they had an editorial decision to make, and it was whether to stick with the original story that they had spent 20 minutes telling or whether they were going to change their story. And I want to hear what you guys think first about those choices. Well, yeah, if I could just first, first of all, I, gotta, I, I really want to tip my hat to Radiolab. I mean, in the same way that Ira dealt with Mike Daisy, I mean, and in the same way that you guys dealt with your uh, conundrum on this quote, um, I mean, I think it's really unusual that those of us in our profession sort of very publicly will have this play out in 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 a public way in the in the way that they did here at Radio Lab and and I really sort of admire them for that and I and I love this show 
I think, here's my thought about it, and, and I'm sure that there's plenty of conversation they're still having about this piece. Um, the framework of this whole show was the idea about facts, about what, you know, the, they quoted Errol Morris as talking about how f facts aren't relative and that you need to really look hard at facts. And I feel like here that really the story was, for me, raised a really interesting question, whether sometimes facts obscure the truth. Um, and it feels to me that that was what was at work here with, in that interview with the Hmong, that in fact it very well probably was bee poop. I mean, it seems to be determined. But in the minds of the Hmong, it felt to them that that may be true, but it obscures this larger truth about what happened to us for which people don't want to recognize and acknowledge. Um, but I, th I think, you know, again, I just want to, again, so tip my hat to Radiolab for having this kind of very public conversation about it. Yeah, I mean, I'll say two things. Um, first, the interview, the interview going just catastrophic, it's something that we deal with, I mean, we have to. We have interviews. Um, uh, <laughs> there are humans coming at these issues from different perspectives, um, and interviews <laughs> gang after awry, as they'd say. Um, uh, it is just brutal to listen to, um, listen to that happen. But um, in the interview itself, I mean, the questions, some of the questions it poses for any moment like this are what preparation could we have done for this interview? How could we, what questions could we have asked before the interview to prevent this? What could we, what could we have done better during the interview to show more? Uh, I think, you know, it was universally felt that um, at least among the commenters from Radio Lab, that uh, a lack of respect was being shown in the interview. That yeah, they usually get um, a couple dozen comments on their podcasts, yeah. and they got hundreds and hundreds of comments. I think that Karulowicz is a lawyer in his former life. Yeah, but a long former. I mean, he's right. Been, he's been but I, but right. but I think right. that he approaches that interview the way a lawyer would approach the interview, and I think that it does sound prosecutorial. Yeah, right, right, right. And setting it up as a mutually exclusive proposition was was unfair and the other to those thing, sources. The other thing is that Eng. Uh, uh, in this instance, it feels like Eng and his niece are sort of being held accountable for scientific decisions that were made sort of far outside their, their purview. Um, and that he's asking them um, to account for, atone for, or uh, somehow uh, comment on science, which is not what their story is. The other thing that the commenters said, and Pat, Pat lays this out, I think, um, pretty nicely in that in that conversation afterwards, um, the commenters, several of them said, you know, um, what we're missing here. You have two stories, right? Um, you had the one story that you were going after, which is journalistically an important story for the reasons uh, Robert said that uh, the this controversy, um, the chemical weapon in this case was used as um, a pretext to um, to uh, enable the U.S. to create chemical weapons of its own. Um, and so this is an important matter to understand what actually happened in this case. But at the same time, 
there is this other story. And what you didn't realize, what we didn't realize um, in the course of, and, and what commenters asked, do you still realize, is that this story about this thing that happened to Aang and his countrymen um, it was actually larger at this moment. It, it, it is more, to us, the listeners, this is a bigger story. This session is titled, Whose Story Is It Anyway? And I think that one of the most important ethical choices that we make is how we frame our stories. And those are choices that, that as storytellers, we have the absolute power to make. And I don't think we pay attention to how much um, harm and, and, how, and how much revelation can come from the right frame. So there's lots of comments here. So with the scarf. Um, I don't know. This is, I had a recent situation where I know this incarcerate, he's this incarcerated individual who is a crack dealer for 25 years, and he decided he wants to be a country singer when he's released. And um, I wanted to interview him about that. And he insisted on telling me his entire story from when he was 13 years old. And it was a two-hour interview. And it's really, I just think it's so challenging because like Robert Crowich was going after this one story and like me going into that interview with this individual as going for that one story and like it does feel kind of exploitive. Like I didn't mind, I don't know, I wanted to have that. I had a two hour interview with him because I knew that he needed to tell his story but like what's my role as the journalist? Like am I the one who's supposed to be facilitating that? I don't know, this is just something I've been thinking through and then like I think this example of Robert Colbert really emphasizes like what happens when you don't give people the space to tell their own story as opposed to just going after like that jewel you can put in your pocket and walk away with. So yeah, I don't it, know. I guess this is just expository. Exactly. I mean, to, to, to Radio Lab's credit, like you said, they did, they did air their discussion. I think that what the other thing that they could have done when that story blew up is to acknowledge that they had crafted a narrative and the narrative was going to turn on these specific pieces and and they could have gone back and reframed that because it didn't have to be and therefore it wasn't there were no chemical weapons that were ever deployed against the Hmong that didn't have to be the conclusion and in fact that's not an accurate conclusion um, and I don't think they intended for that to be the conclusion, but, but, but when she got so emotional, it was apparent that that was her conclusion, that, that, if, you, that, that, that if A, then B, and, and, and it didn't have to be that way. And I think it would have even been better, a better service to the story if they had been able to say, and still there is this story, this very sorrowful story of what happened to these people and um, and 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 there is there it is hard to reconcile these two. But here's here are ways that you could possibly reconcile them, and maybe looked for other possibilities or explanations. So um, lots of questions in the back in the green. I'm going to try and call on people who haven't spoken. Well, it, it's also um, it seems like a liability that when you ask to interview someone, they hear what they want to hear. Like it's very possible that they were very clear about what they wanted out of the interview and Robert stands up for that but at the same time the monk you know father and daughter really they heard what they wanted to hear they were looking for their opportunity to tell their story and that's where it seems like things went really awry and where things could go awry a lot and I don't know what recommendations you have for 
sensing that. Right. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think, look, everybody has their own reasons for sharing their stories. Um, and I think in this case, their reason was very clear is that they felt this, Eng felt that their, their story, the, the story of the Hmong had not really been told and, and acknowledged. Um, and I, I feel like one of the things that we've got to do is that one, and, and Robert was, to his credit, I think you have to be very straight with the people about what your intent is, about what you're doing, with the understanding, too, that we're out there and stories kind of, you know, shape and reshape themselves as you're out there. And so, again, working on this film was a perfect example. We were telling people why we were there, but we, you know, periodically, the, you know, we would take these right turns and realize that the story was becoming something very different than we had anticipated. Um, but I, I think... I think that what happened here is that perhaps that Robert was so intent to sort of get into the bottom of the Yellow Rain story that he wasn't attentive enough to what Eng really wanted him to hear. Um, and that's sort of where you see that kind of conflict arise. Yeah. Well, one of my questions actually was what, I, I, I wondered what, even listening to this, I wondered what did Robert, what was he most curious about? In the circumstance, what was it that actually he was uh, he was hoping to hear from Aang? Yeah, um, I'm going to take two more comments and then we're going to wrap because we're we're out of time. But in the back there, in the blue, uh, I I don't know if you guys want to continue on this particular topic, but I have something. Can I shift to a let's let's not just because we've only got two minutes, right. and for the sake of closure, we want to all have an experience where we can finish. So, anybody have a good final comment? Yeah. I was just uh, what I thought was interesting is that there's this discussion that they had after mm -hmm. that really like made this division between the subjects and the journalist, and like why couldn't have they had that conversation that they had at the end with? Then. That's a great, great point. It's a really great point. You know, on that note. Yeah, I mean, um, and, to, and to that point, um, as a listener, was that a satisfying ending? It was transparent, but was that self-indulgent? Was that jour journalistically the best thing that they could have done with that? The ending of that episode. Yeah. And if I could just say too, to, I mean, the bottom line is we're all out there telling other people's stories. It's an incredible responsibility, and uh, and we're not only exposing other people, we're also exposing ourselves. And I think that in this case, Robert, Jad, and Pat, I think really expose themselves. And I feel a little, I, part of me feels a little uncomfortable having this conversation without, without them, yeah. them present. Because uh, they're all the absolutely spectacular journalists. And I can only imagine that it really sort of, sort of wreaked havoc with sort of what they. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher. Because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com We're doing and with this story, and I think it's what we all face, is this fear that we're going to be out there and we're going to stumble, and we're going to stumble for everybody to see. And it's what makes, in part, what's make these ethical issues so difficult is because we're not only thinking about the people whose stories we're telling, but we're also thinking about ourselves, um, as we should. Um, it's our reputations that are at stake. All right. So um, as you go forth, um, you know that there aren't any easy answers. Um, and there are, there are really good questions to be asking, though. And there are really smart people that you can tap into to help you make these decisions. So thank you very much, and thank our panelists. Thank you. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. Okay, speak soon. Bye.